0: Hello, Equity family. It's Alex. The show is off this week, as I'm sure you mostly noticed, but we didn't want to leave you hanging. So in case you just needed a little bit more of the show to tide you over on a long weekend or whatever you have coming up, this is last year's episode from this point in time. Now, we've talked a lot about how 2022 is not quite like 2021. Well, how did last year feel in June? Well, here you go. Feel the difference, hear the tonal shift from then to now, and we'll see you on Monday. Okay, bye. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast, where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, and I'm joined today by Danny Crichton. Danny, hello. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well, Alex. Had some good chips. That we had on the pre-show going on here, and apparently you don't like me munching, munching, munching on the headphones.
0: Actually, to be totally honest, I don't mind at all. But certain people have a very, very strong aversion to the sound of chewing, uh, one of which <laughs> is Chris Gates, one of our two excellent fine producers. The other is my wife, who gives me dirty looks whenever I chew very loudly with my mouth open, which I do all the time. <laughs> <laughs> the other laughter you hear in the background, of course, is Natasha Moscarenas. Natasha, hello. One, how's life? And two... Are you ever going back to the
2: Bay Area? Life is good because I am going back to the Bay Area. I officially booked my ticket and SF is officially not dead because I will be there and I am alive.
0: Also, is, is it good to have more TechCrunchers on the ground. And I think our office is reopening. Like, oh, the thing wow. oh the changes. <laughs> officially,
1: we are allowed into the office next month. Yeah. So you heard the, it here the first. plant in the TechCrunch New York office that hasn't been watered in 14 months, <laughs> we'll see how it's doing. And uh, for some of the people who left, like John and, and Anthony and others, we've never taken their clothes out of the office. Free stuff. They've been gone for months
0: in some cases.
2: Let's do a thrift sale. <laughs> well,
0: now that I know all about Depop and Poshmark and ThreadUp and other thrifting <laughs> companies from the show, we can buy a raise seven, eight, a pair of used underwear at a dead plant. Listen, we have a diverse and packed show today. We are going to kick off with a couple of long form pieces from Natasha. One looking at a recent memo at Medium. And the ensuing aftermath of that particular bombshell and then a kind of nuanced look into the culture a y combinator a couple of exits from its community and what that means for tech in general then we have notes from blendor a very interesting company that has a report out that we want to parse and a recent funding round from vault platform all within the rubric of tech culture then we're going to do a couple of funding rounds we have chart hop simulate faculty and lifted And we're going to wrap up with a couple of notes on the recent exit of ExtraHop to private equity for just under a billion dollars. So kicking off, Natasha, you wrote two pieces. One focused on a memo that came out of Medium, of course, a well-known unicorn, I think, in the content writing editorial anti-union space. And then you also wrote up some recent drama from the Y Combinator community that we'll get into, starting with Medium. I think you broke the news on the memo. So talk us through what the memo said and what the blowback or feedback has been.
2: Yeah. So for people who have been following Medium, they know that the employees tried to organize earlier this year. That attempt eventually failed. They lost by one vote to be officially recognized as a union. And so there's been a little bit of tension, which has been covered really well, especially by Casey Newton over the past few months. But recent news, I got a tip about how people were leaving, but this time it wasn't due to just the unionization failure and an editorial shift as the CEO had written about. It was because he had also published what had been dubbed internally as a culture memo, which some people felt in the wake of a failed unionization and just overall tension had the undertones of don't really disagree or, you know, complain anymore based (laughs) on the three engineers I talked to there. The statistic, I think, that is core to the story is that of, I believe, the 241 people that started the year at medium, 50% have left. So we're seeing more exits on mediums then.
0: Yeah, I think, Danny, the my main takeaway from this, just to be an asshole for a minute, is that if you have a burn problem at your company and you need to lower your cash consumption, put together a culture memo and it'll solve your staffing issues for you.
1: Well, I mean, one of the things I found very interesting with Natasha's report, you know, I was one of the editors who looked over, is seeing the churn On engineering design and product. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, a lot of the initiatives around culture and diversity we've seen at other companies have actually focused on folks not in the engineering world, um, customer service reps, people who are contractors, um, food service workers, you know, drivers for for Uber, whatever the case may be. This is one of the few cases where I saw the pushback coming from the core of the engineering team. And and one of the the lessons I took from that is that part of the, the challenge here was that Medium had sold for a lot of these folks that it was an open and happy and progressive place to work. And a lot of folks became
0: disillusioned over time with that. Totally. Yeah, my takeaway from this has been a broader dynamic of, of worker empowerment that we've seen kind of in this post-pandemic era, because it seems to be there's two, two labor markets, at least here in, in the United States where you know, the three of us are based, which is that either you can't get a job or you're in incredibly high demand. And so I think that we're seeing people realize they have more leverage and, and more just kind of like ability to change jobs than they may have thought. And that's changing the, the power dynamics between, you know, tech companies and their workers. And I, I think that there's always been a bit of an unstated bargain between employers of engineers in the tech mm-hmm. space and the engineers themselves, which is we pay you a lot of money and then you shut up and do what we say. And that may be gently, slightly beginning to break down. And I think workers that have a lot of leverage are realizing that and are making demands. And then if those aren't met, they're kind of voting with their feet because it's not like they couldn't just go get another job. Their LinkedIn box is just recruiters trying to get them more money somewhere else. So why not just say yes to one of those and go to a place that you think might better fit your own expectations for a workplace environment, which is a political point frankly.
2: Totally. And what I thought was interesting is literally like a week later, we heard about stuff going down at YC. And so Medium gave you this look into how a really different relationship, which is between employee and employer, is getting tense. And with YC this past week, two alumni were removed from Bookface, their internal messaging forum. And it gave us a look at how an alum company works with its investor, its heavy-handed investor, that um, initially helped at launch, and Alex has just taken his shirt off, and I can't not adjust it. Talking <laughs> about
1: a hostile workplace, and
0: literally people are de-robing themselves on the podcast. No, no. I have to turn the AC off in my office to record because it weird. goes on <laughs> I the know, microphone. i like, sweatshirt too now.
2: And... I just realized I'm a sweatshirt. It's really, really hot in my
0: shed because it's like a greenhouse, and I didn't want to interrupt the show, but I also didn't want to sweat for the next half an hour. So I took off my t shirt, and now I'm wearing a tank top. I'm not naked. Do not get me fired for this. Get me fired for something else, but not for this. The percentage <laughs> of skin in that video just went up All by 80%. All my bits are covered. I am decent.
1: <laughs> A little levity in the middle of the the deep conversation. But we were Sorry. talking about Y Combinator and and two founders getting kicked out of the community, which, which sounds devastating. But I didn't actually know. And actually, was more surprised because I didn't realize there were 10,000 founders in the YC alumni network at this point. So, I mean, it, it's like its own city. Exactly. Right? And if you think about how many people are in that group, to be kicked out of, uh, of an alumni network there seems quite devastating.
2: And because I asked for clarification, to be kicked out of Bookface is also to be not invited to Demo Day anymore and removed from the YC Slack. Yeah. And so it's pretty harsh. It's not a casual bit. I mean, the two founders. One was from the 2010 batch and their startup shuttered eight months after graduating. So there was no financial stake for YC to lose there. The other graduated the last in-person batch and the co-founder is still in the accelerator. So again, unsure. But Danny, what you were saying, YC is basically an institution now. It's the size of my high school. <laughs> it makes sense that it's being held to a higher standard per Gary Tan. who used to be an investor there. But this issue ended up being really nuanced because we saw one side saying they got removed for breaking community rules, which is posting private information publicly, and one side saying they got removed for posting critically publicly. And so there's a whole other debate to be had here. And I don't know if it distills well into a podcast moment, but it's, it's nuanced.
0: Yeah. To me, it fits into the same general thrust of conversation in which you know old power dynamics don't exactly convert as well to the digital world. And uh, I think it also underscores a little bit of the, and I'm not going to drag us in this direction, the the view of media by some elites in, in the tech world. Because in, in your piece, Natasha, one of the people that posted, this was Katya Damer from Prolific, she posted some, well, a screenshot from Jessica Livingston, a person, by the way, that I was on stage with at the Crunchies, like way back wow. when, perfectly nice person in person. But in the screenshot of her defending Antonio, who's a former YCR who got... Hired by Apple and then fired because of people at Apple didn't want him to work there because of a book that he wrote, which had some pretty crappy stuff in it. It, it was funny, she says, I and mean, we know from being in the startup world how often people are criticized unfairly by the press. And I just want to point out that like this is a great example of how the elite view of the media inside of tech doesn't translate because every single company at YZ wants to talk to us. Basic. Well, it's like 95% of them. And no, so totally. Jes- Jessica Livingston saying that like, you know, the, the press is bad is just kind of funny to me because it's not a, a, an opinion even held by her organization. <laughs>
2: you know, <laughs> So true. It's so, true.
0: Yeah, that, that made me stand up. But my, my general take after reading these is that the power dynamics are changing, Natasha, between yeah. workers and, and employers and between organizations and, and their founders. And I wonder where this goes next. I wonder what the next iteration of this looks like. We're not done, I don't think.
2: I think we're going to see a lot more of these kinds of stories throughout the summer and into the re-entry of people into the workforce. And my takeaway, if I had to sum it up, is people within communities are not feeling heard internally. And so they feel like they can speak out. And so agreed with you on the empowerment front. I am refining my opinion to not think that the moderators themselves are these evil beings. I don't think YC is evil, but I think there's like something that's broken with how people are feeling like they're heard. And I think that's like something that every founder listening should be thinking about right now.
1: Well, I think it's always a sign. I mean, the classic journalism rule is you can always tell the morale of an organization based on the amount of leaks that come out of that organization. And so you look at some (laughs) of the big tech companies, you can tell because there are dozens and dozens of leaks. But what to me is interesting is that we're not just getting leaks and, you know, words on a page or in a tweet. We're also getting startups coming out of this world and multiple startups trying to attack or improve various aspects of these challenges. And so one of the first ones um, that we had this week was a company called Blendor. That's B-L-E-N-D-O-O-R-1-D. And what they're focusing on is how to help companies uh, meet and exceed their diversity pledges.
2: I think it's interesting. So CEO Stephanie Lampkin started this company really to help with the DEI hiring efforts, but then I think this is a really key detail in Ron's piece. She realized there was a difference between what companies said that they were publicly committed to, to where they were actually putting their hiring resources. So Blendor is actually, you know, where it is right now. It's a pivot from what it originally started to do. I guess the best way to describe it now is it helps give a score to these companies based on publicly available data, kind of like a credit score, they said about diversity.
0: Yeah, so essentially you can go to a company and you know... companies often have logos that they're like you know certified by x security company or they're part of you know y collective in the you know manufacturing space whatever in this case you're going to have a little badge that says kind of how well you're doing on on actually hiring diverse people Lampkin had a great quote in ron's piece and i'm just going to read it for us you know when george floyd was killed and i saw this resurgence of the diversity pledge i decided that i don't want to play in this diversity theater anymore and just be another check the box solution that companies are using to demonstrate that they care so she, what she's trying to say is don't just try to get us to say that you're reasonable in like your intentions. We want to know what's happening on the results side and that's how we're going to judge you. So a, a pivot, maybe a clarification perhaps is sure. maybe how I, I almost think about this. And, and it's really cool. The company has 13 employees and has raised 1.7 million. So it's a relatively modestly funded company. And it's going to be interesting to see one, the kind of traction they can get with its new focus, and also which VCs are going to step up and say that this is a vision for the future that they want to endorse with their checkbook.
2: Right.
1: And these sorts of scores are also valuable not just for the company itself to assess and have a metric that they can look at you know, monthly or at a board meeting. It's also good for VCs because more and more VCs, more and more pension funds, and investors worldwide have ESG requirements. We're seeing this particularly out of Europe. ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. In some countries, pension funds and other large uh, asset allocators are obligated to invest up to 15 or 20% of their total assets into businesses widely perceived as being ESG. And if you're focusing on that space at all, you know that finding metrics, defining what ESG means, defining whether a company is actually helping climate change or hurting climate change is really complicated. So there is a massive world for companies to develop better, more objective metrics of success in that category. And I think Blendor is definitely falling in that right away. But there's another company this week. They fall into the same category, Vault Platform. We're just focusing on on misconduct reporting. Uh, Natasha, did you write the story to who wrote this story? Because it's not it's it's a, different, a
2: different Natasha wrote this story. <laughs> who, has, who has
1: the Natasha <laughs> at email address? That's what matters.
2: It's Natasha Lamas. And I am oh, forever jealous I'm so sorry. of it. It's OK. It's OK. Neither of us have the Natasha Twitter handle.
0: It's why you need to have a unique name like Danny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just want to point out that I used to have I think I had Alex at TechWrench.com at one point in time. And then I came back and they were like, because you've been a bad boy and left. Now you're <laughs> Alex.Wilhelm at com. Tough. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about this company because, one, it raised $8.2 million. Damn. So it's, it's an interesting amount of money. And it also came from Google's Gradient Ventures, which, Danny, correct me if I'm wrong, is Google's AI-focused investing group. But what it wants to do is offer a software solution that allows for better whistleblowing and misconduct reporting. And some of the examples that came up that the company really wants to tackle are things like the catastrophes at Boeing, and Dieselgate at a very certain uh, German auto manufacturer and essentially give more power to people to not only report, but also not report alone. And this is the key thing that they do that I think is pretty cool. It's called go together, all one word. What it does is I think it lets you like submit something, but only have it be submitted really if someone else submits a similar report. And so you're not lone rangering a misconduct report your company. Now, why does that matter? Because people are afraid of being fired. You know, and so I I think here it's like, you know, here's a way to tell someone this will only go forward if you're not alone. And I think that that could encourage, you know, as opposed to inhibit people from uh, raising their hand in situations where, you know, things aren't going well.
2: My only worry when I saw Go Together was, I guess, making people also feel not empowered if they're the only person. It's like, is it only a problem if it's happened to two people at the organization, specifically with things such as assault? I, I think like that is something that I'm like, oh, I wonder how they're doing checks and balances there.
0: Well, I, I don't think you have to. I think it's an option. So I think okay. you can report misconduct. So you can say I saw something that was wrong or I was harassed or whatever, and you can go and do it. But I think I think this is an additional thing to let people, you know, like what if you saw something, Natasha, in like accounting and you're like, well, ugh, is it is it not good? I'm not really sure. But if someone else flags this, it's probably worth it. So I'm going to raise my hand. And, it's like upvote. <laughs> yeah. it's it, it's Or it's like, remember when it was like, you know, like if 10,000 people want to buy this pair of shoes, we'll make them. It's like that. But two people, instead of shoes, it's fraud. It's the Groupon of fraud. Yes. There you go. <laughs> well, and, here's a, and look, the, the company is falling into a,
1: a market that's actually expanding really rapidly. So in the European Union, the EU passed a Whistleblower Protection Act, which increased the need for what was dubbed Trust Tech. And so in the EU, uh starting in December 2021, any company with more than 250 employees will have to have a reporting solution in place. Yes. And what I actually think is particularly interesting with this market that I, I think is subtle is there is a little bit of a moral hazard at some point. Like, do you really want to be the one company that does not have the assault and or miscontact reporting system in place? Like legally, this this is similar to some other startups. Like I've talked about Textio on the podcast probably a yeah. year or two ago. Where are just like once enough people start using it, everyone has to use it because it proves if you're not using it, that you're a bad person or a bad organization. And so the norms of the industry change that I think that's going to be very strong for, for VOL platform, for some of the other increasing competition in the space, All
0: Voices, Wisply, Hootsworth, Spot, a bunch of others. Again, we are seeing the empowerment of individual workers over larger corporate systems and this fits into that. Now, we are going to pivot into a couple of early stage ish rounds. The first one of which is the one that I'm excited about because I think it made Danny mad, which is my favorite thing. So, Danny Charthop has put together $35 million and it, this to me in my brain was just like the org chart software company. I presume it does more than that now, but tell us about this round. Oh, so, Charthop is a what they're dubbing
1: an internal org chart and people analytics platform. It raised $35 million led by uh, a16z. We've talked about org chart software a lot on this show because it's a popular place for investment for reasons. I'm not going to pretend there are no reasons, but it's one of those things where you're like, I'm investing in org chart. I'm going to put tens of millions of dollars into the org chart. I
2: struggle with it.
1: It, it sounds ridiculous, but th- to unpack it a little bit, ChartHop focuses on internal org charts. So for anyone who's used Workday, I personally use Workday. Mm-hmm. Let's just say their org chart, I think there are three-year-olds with crayons that are multicolored who would probably do a better job of demonstrating how I report into this company then Workday shows me. And so chart hop is designed to show me, okay, I'm part of this team or cluster or network of people inside the company. It, it's designed to democratize a lot of HR. The company uh, came out of stealth in the early 2020. So this is actually a really fast turnaround, 35 million, 75 employees in about a year, year and a half post-launch. And they said they have 130 companies using the service. So clearly a lot of folks need to understand what the hell the org chart is of their company in
0: order to buy it. And, and here's where I want to I want to do what I don't usually do and defend the, the startup versus snark about it, which is way more fun. There seems to be a lot of integrations into other bits of software that bring in data that allows you to to better slice and dice your workplace personnel, if you will. And I think that that, that matters because once you get past 100 people, you stop knowing everyone's name. I went through this at Crunchbase so as we grew. like There was a time in which everyone kind of sat in a little area. We all knew each other. And then it gets much harder. You're on different floors. You can't keep track of things. And so making that more transparent to employees and also allowing uh, managers and execs to have more of an analytical solution to better understand who works them makes a lot of sense to me, you know, especially as we care more about this stuff and we pay more attention to diversity and et cetera. I mean, like I, I can kind of see critically, Danny, the company was posting very fast uh, revenue growth.
1: Yeah, very, very fast revenue growth. They said uh, 17% month over month revenue growth over the last 12 months. And I think what's interesting, so I, I-, I do make a lot of fun of org chart software, but ChartHop is focused internally. One of their competitors, but it's not really a competitor, is called the org, which has also raised a lot of money. They're focused on what I would call the external org chart, so showing the org chart at other companies, it's companies you want to sell into, companies you want to build partnerships with. So like, there's just more and more information around the intelligence of who works at what companies. And I think it's interesting because both of these, I think, are getting valued as Either LinkedIn competitors Uh is the next generation version of LinkedIn or the next generation of HR software. And both of those are very valuable markets.
0: So I want to go ahead and just say that whenever we make fun of a software market or a solution that feels too niche, I just remember that OKR software is booming. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) uh, let's
1: put it this way. org charts make a hell of a lot more sense to me than OKRs.
0: Well, okay, the OKR is the new OC. I'm just gonna let that fly, Natasha. We're gonna we're gonna move into something that I think is more uh, relevant to the the youths that listen to Equity, all 14 of them,
2: and the vegetarians,
0: and the vegetarians of which there are seven. So this is this is for all 21 of you out there, <laughs> inclusive of Natasha. <laughs> Fake chicken nuggets are apparently oh big business. What's going so on? So good,
2: nugs are so good. I tried them for the first time in Chicago, and the company simulate has raised a Series B round. So they announced that they raised $50 million by Alexis Ohanian's 776 fund, which actually announced it's closed today, $150 million of its debut fund. And as Alex introduced it as it's this kind of hip, trendy chicken nugget alternative. And it's D2C. And right now it's available in 5,000 retail locations and is planning to kind of go through it with restaurants and fast food going forward. I was amped and still am amped about this company.
1: So, so they come frozen?
2: They come frozen. It takes like five minutes to make, and you can get it at your closest Foxtrot if you're in the Chicago area.
1: I don't know what Foxtrot is.
2: You're not in the Chicago area, Dave.
0: It's also in Walmart, Sam's Club. I've heard of those. Target, Whole <laughs> yes. Foods. Have you been to any of those stores, Dan?
1: Uh, they do not sound like the kind of bougie boutique ateliers that I try to go to for my nugs. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, first of all, I don't know how much of this round was done by 776. But hundred fifty million dollar fund leading a fifty million dollar round. Do they just burn like the seven of the seven seven six into the fund? <laughs> they have three investments to go, and each of those is the number of size that they can invest in. Pretty soon it's gonna be Alexis Ohanian's six
0: fund. Just like down to its last check,
1: it <laughs> counts oh, down. The fund number counts down
0: as they spend more money. I want to make a point about this though. Aside from making jokes about it, one chicken small breaded chicken products are an enormous market, and I know that sounds dumb. But I buy a lot of these from my Whole Foods. They sell like chicken, like, like pre-made breaded chicken strips. And we, Liza and I call them chicken bits. And we're, we put them in salads. We put them in all sorts of shit. It's great. I love the idea of making a, taking a popular consumer product, making it more environmentally sound and reducing harm that we see in kind of mass farming. So this sits well with me.
2: I am going to actually move us along to, I think, another brand that we should all pay attention to, Faculty. It recently got seed funding from Estee Lauder. And I want one of you to describe it. So Danny Crichton, go for well, it.
1: Well, I, I, I'm actually more annoyed by the transition because I was going to say that Faculty oh, no. is a nail polish brand for men. And I was going to make a transition about, you know, when you're playing with nugs with sauce on it, the sauce becomes a kind of nail polish. But if you want something fancier than nug sauce...
0: You can get faculty nail polish. Okay, anyway. So this is why we stopped doing transitions before we do the show. We used to write them down, but Danny will now not do one and then he do it anyways. you go back We'll just yeah. go back and, two and
1: two. revise history. So faculty announced that it raised $3 million led by Estee Lauder, co-founded by Fenton Jagdio and Umar El Babli in 2019. And they're focused on three shades of nail polish design for a new wave of masculinity. The idea is obviously more and more people are, are concerned about their appearance. It's an Instagram world. And they see a huge opportunity to focus on the men's cosmetics market compared to classically
0: most of these companies are focused on, on the female market. I'm going to go over my skis for a second. And so if any of this accidentally comes out as offensive, please realize that I'm trying to be nothing but culturally sensitive. The rise of K-pop in America has been pretty big, I think. And I think that when we look at how K-pop artists present themselves, it is pretty much the, the opposite of 80s grunge and heavy metal that are popular here in America back in the day. And so I think we've seen cultural norms around men's grooming change. And I think we've also seen a rising acceptance of men wearing makeup and, and that sort of thing. And as we can see, faculty wants to expand into things like foundation, eyeshadow, hair dye and so forth. I, I I think the company is is chasing a trend that is pretty darn smart.
2: I love that they're not waiting for like everyone to get it. Like, I love that they're like, we are just going to bet on the next wave of masculinity and I don't care about the fragile people in the market you know what i mean and so i feel like that is really great to me
0: what i don't like is that it's using the drop model like i love everything (laughs) (laughs) everything about the company is great i love i love that they raise strategic money i like the name i like all of it and then i'm like oh it's drops which means if you're not hip they release some products sporadically and you have to be very clued in to get them i'm busy and i do not have time to track drops (laughs) <laughs> what I would like is to look better by giving someone my money. So faculty, what, what, please. what
1: Alex wants is a loot box model where you just kind of like scratch into the loot box and then your nails are <laughs> totally ruined. So you need nail polish. Um, but to go back to Alex's point about K-pop, South Korea is the world's largest male cosmetics market yes. by far for only 24, or 25 million men in the country. It actually grew 40 percent last year. What's interesting is, according to an article last uh, year in in CNN, for Gen Z South Korean male correspondents, 58% said they want to pamper themselves with lengthy beauty or grooming treatments at least once per week.
2: Let's go. At least
1: once per week. So going even beyond nail polish, which I think is a fairly daily activity if you're partaking in it, there's just a huge market. uh, And think of this as just Greenfield. I mean, there's just no kind of incumbents in this space. So to me, even if you can get one or 2% of the market to actually go do this, a huge, huge opportunity. But if you're focusing on cosmetics and looking good, you might want a facelift. That's not what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about <laughs> Lifted instead.
0: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Danny writes his own transitions. Do not look to us as an explanation. Also, we're going to eventually come up with a new joke for the show other than flaming you for dad jokes. Anyways, <laughs> 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 Lifted has put together a $6.2 million seed round led by Fuel Ventures. And essentially, this is a bet on elder tech, Natasha, and care for our senior citizens. Focused over in the UK, you. I, I want this in the show because I know you've been looking a little bit at the health tech space and a little bit at the elder care space. Does this fit into a thesis that we should really be paying attention to?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think there's a lot of decision making that happens for anyone in the healthcare world. And with elders, to have all that pressure just on yourself Feels outdated just the way it feels outdated for all of us. Like, I don't think it's anything about age specifically, but I do think there is a way to use age as a wedge into serving this, you know, probably taxed group of people. And so when I saw Lifted raise money just to answer the problem, as Mike Butcher puts it, of caring for elderly and develop more long term health issues. I got it because they are trying to compete against the traditional way it's done, where it's a lot of non-digital, like mm-hmm. you have to go in person and, mm-hmm. and, and call and ask the right questions. What if there's a way to do it in a more seamless, digitally friendly way?
0: All right. Now we are a little bit short on time. And so we are going to pivot to our very last thing. Or as Danny might say, we are going to hop, skip, and jump over to the Oh my the God. Extra I, had, hop. I
1: literally had that in my head. Yep. I got it. This no. is the week of hopping. So we're not just talking about Chart Hop, but Extra Hop also had some
0: news this week. Alex, what's going on? Why do I even try? <laughs> so this is a bit of a head scratcher and we're going to do something kind of strange here. So if you're not familiar with the exit market, it's going to sound strange that I'm going to say $900 million for Extra Hop feels a little light. But Danny, you know, we know the company reached around 150 million in bookings in 2019, was going to hit 100 million ARR last year, and the company ExtraHop based in Seattle does cybersecurity sold for 900 million, which feels on a multiples basis relatively light. So briefly, if you could, what could be behind an exit price of a company being a little bit less than we might anticipate for a company of its scale, size, and market? Well, with limited information, it's a lot of guesstimation. But what I would say is customer concentration,
1: out-of-date technology that's being usurped by younger startups. And so it looks like it's a mature but dying company that may still be growing literally today, but might not have a great future. It could be that you know it's actual contractual revenue. So actually looking at Services as opposed to software. So maybe it's not 100% recurring revenue. So we're right. kind of mis multiplying the, the revenue numbers. So there's a lot of reasons, but clearly it's not a classic SaaS company because sub 10x would be very disappointing to a lot of other companies. <laughs> and if that was the standard, I would be selling a lot of your portfolio as we speak.
0: Yeah. And I, I talked to the company back when they were approaching 100 million ARR. And frankly, you know, for the Seattle scene, a, b- a roughly billion dollar exit matters, right? Because Seattle, the Seattle Redmond blob is more than just amazon and microsoft employees there is actually some some pretty active startups up there and some some venture capital firms that we talk to on a regular basis as well so a, a bit of a head scratcher on this one but fun to see a company that i covered a while ago kind of end up at an exit point uh here again we see private equity afoot something to keep in mind because we are seeing more and more private equity deals in and around the tech space but ladies and gentlemen we have to wrap it up there and I'm just going to go ahead and uh, close by saying that I am not here next week. I will be away. I will be hopefully asleep. And Natasha has been so kind as to volunteer to take over the Monday show. So she will be guiding you into the week next week. And that means it's going to be twice as good. And uh, we'll have better diction as she, as she explains what's going on. So, uh, Natasha, no thank you for that. And I look forward to listening to it.
2: Thanks, Alex. I'm excited.